Welcome to the series where we explore what must ooze from the box. This is Small Plot Podcast with me, Ellen Reed. In time, I stopped showing my drawing and never again mentioned stars. Instead, I would talk about golf, money, politics, and neckties. And everyone was pleased to have met such a sensible man. So, I lived my life alone, without anyone I could really talk to. Until a short time ago. Paris calling flight FPDXY. Paris calling flight FPDXY. Come in, please over. Hello, friends, and welcome to Small Plot Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Reed, and each week I will traverse the tricky terrain of critical theory and try to achieve a body without organs. This week I'm speaking to my friend David Hartery about Donald Winnicott's Fear of Breakdown. Throughout the podcast, I called him Donald Winnicott, so I apologize, but I still can't say Guattari right or Guattari, so just rolling with it. Um, but anyway, I digress. I'm really excited for you to all listen to my episode with David, as I think it's really important for the current moment, where I think we are all experiencing severe amounts of distress, whether we are thinking about living through the Anthropocene and climate change or massive political unrest and the increasing powers of the police in France or whether it's kind of going through issues dealing with um, image-based sexual abuse in Ireland. So I think there's a lot of places where we can be traumatised and, and re-traumatised throughout our daily lives in the current political moment and The conversation that I had with David was incredibly important because it was actually quite empowering to think that sometimes breakdown can actually be a generative act. And sometimes breakdown can be really important in terms of orienting or reorienting yourself in different ways. I was really excited to have this conversation with David actually because I've actually never explored psychoanalysis. Literally the first and last instances of psychoanalysis that I've really kind of had to look at in depth were at my second year literary theory class in my undergrad. So talking to someone who understands psychoanalysis more than me was actually, or not even just more than me, but like someone who actually appreciates psychoanalysis more than me was really, really important. And this is kind of why I want to have the podcast as a space. I'd never fucking heard of this guy before. I don't really care about what Lacan has to say, but I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to learn and, you know, be able to see the good parts in in psychoanalysis. I think as well, like I'm always quite sceptical of psychoanalysis as a queer person. And I know that like, queer theorists have used psychoanalysis a lot in their work but there's something like deeply problematic that I find with like Oedipal kind of impulses um, and things like that and maybe it's just because I really love Deleuze but I was really I'm really happy that I got to have a conversation with David and that he actually facilitated my queer readings of um, the fear of breakdown piece. As with everything, I will leave all the kind of links and things that uh, David has referred to in the show notes so you can read the piece. It's very short. Um, Let us know what you think. 
I'll put David's um, social media stuff as well so you can annoy him and tell him Liverpool are shit um, <laughs> and that Waterford are going to lose the All-Ireland against Limerick. No, but seriously, he's an amazing thinker. Um, he's such an incredibly talented and intelligent person and I don't think he gives himself enough credit for that. And um, I don't think he realises how intimidated I am by his genius. Um, so... <laughs> Um, thank you so much again to David for being a part of this. I'm sure he'll be back to talk about some other theory in the future because he is the person who has gifted me a huge folder full of critical theory. He gave me access to it. It's amazing. Oh, and I should say as well, David is the reason why this podcast is a podcast. He's the kind of person who encouraged me to do this. And he's such a supportive person and he does a lot for me whether he realizes that or not so I think I guess this podcast is like me also working through theoretical perspectives but me also being like look at all of my amazing friends like Louise and David and the people to come in the future um so yeah this is um critical theory and stanning my friends podcast now but yeah please do enjoy the episode and let us know what you think and I'll talk to you at the end Paris calling flight, FPDXY, come in, please over. FPDXY to Paris. Ground speed. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing okay. Um, just here, my, staying with my parents at the moment, so I uh, wanted to get home for Christmas. So just uh, living a quite boring life at the moment, but it's uh, it's okay. Yeah, lots of time to talk about critical theory. <laughs> <laughs> Catch up on all the reading. Um, so today we're going to be discussing uh, Fear of Breakdown by Donald Winnicott, uh, which was a very interesting piece for me to read as someone who isn't into psychoanalysis at all. So first off, I just want to ask you about like where you kind of, I suppose, align yourself politically, um, if we're going to talk about like how critical theory is, is relevant to political moments and stuff like that. If you have sure. any insights. <laughs> yeah, I guess I would be economically Marxist and socially critical theorist, I guess is how I would usually put it. Like I would be quite orthodox Marxist in terms of um, economic policies, uh, social, that kind of stuff. But in terms of uh, social analysis, I like to, I do lead on a lot of um, uh, critical theories, especially psychoanalysis. Yeah, come from, from that lens. I've talked a lot about um, the intersection between mental health and economics. And I think that that, lends itself, I think, to the um, the psychoanalytical, especially Lacan, Freud. I also think that it's very important, uh, the piece that you wrote recently in response to Orla Mundelchun. Um, so I'm going to link that in the, the show notes, if, if that's okay, because um, it was a conversation that I actually had with Louise, who was on uh, the first episode of the podcast, and we kind of talked about that a bit and how, you know, there's kind of this glaring overlooking of like the underbelly of society and how it can be just kind of glossed by this very reductive standpoint. How did you get into psychoanalysis as like an area of interest? Because, yeah, I, as I said to you already, like it, it, my interest in it like started and ended in a literary theory class. Uh, and I never wanted to pursue it after that. And I think maybe it's my own weird... Uh, relationship to it as a queer person that may have caused that kind of 
distrust of it. Um, but I'm interested to see like how you found value in it as a theoretical or practical place to jump off of. Yeah, so it all starts in university. I actually didn't study, um, I studied law in university, but I hated it. And uh, I was really going to the library to read anything but um, law. So I was reading a lot of critical theory at that point. And um, I suppose I got into it through very uncool Zizek, Slavoj Zizek, <laughs> um, who, who at that time I was extremely into. Um, and I was reading a lot of that. And then I had the topic of this essay I had a serious breakdown in final year and it was kind of my that was kind of when I really got into it because it was attempting to interrogate the conditions I found myself in so hospitalization uh, kind of the discipline of uh, hospital visits uh, I used to go to Cork to the the Dean Clinic in Cork which was an offshoot of St Pat's and the the monthly checkups and blood tests and all the rest of it there was a very ongoing kind of medicalization of my life that I didn't I found very disempowering and I found this idea that you just take a pill and do a worksheet and that I just keep doing these kind of routines and eventually you come out the other side of it. I found it very disempowering and very um, alienating. So that was kind of when I started going back to the kind of stuff I'd read in university, just firstly, just to kind of try and carve out something for myself in it. So some I read some Foucault, read some, uh, went back and read Freud. Um, and then I kind of fell out of love with it especially things like Zizek, just because it's obviously politically suspect at times, Zizek especially. Mm. Then when I moved to Berlin about two years ago now, uh, I started going to some reading groups and a lot of the reading groups were focused around uh, Lacan. And that was kind of when I started properly reading Lacan, not from the point of view of Zizek, but from the point of view of Lacan. And then I started reading some other theorists, uh, Melanie Klein um, and uh, Mary Ruti, who I've been enjoying a lot recently. Um, actually, this um, piece uh, from Winnicott was, uh, there's a really cool reading group in Berlin called Spellbound, which is about um, feminist spirituality and witches and stuff like that. And this was about, we watched a movie Shock Corridor, which was about psychic transmission or psychotic transmission. And it was about this idea that can incidences of um, mass hysteria be spread uh, interpersonally and then this this was about the um this idea of the transmission of, of psycho psychosis and how does this happen and that was kind of how i arrived at this point oh really interesting actually just as you say that i watched a film recently um called the falling i don't know if you've heard about it and it's about this interpersonal transmission of hysteria in a girl's school and mass fainting very interesting it, it's I didn't enjoy the film, um, okay. but um, I I just, I wanted, I, I, do you know, the reason why I didn't enjoy the film was because Tracy Thorne was singing throughout it, which was very <laughs> unnerving, um, but I, I suppose I, that whole idea of like this kind of transmission of it is, is something that I kind of flagged to you about my reading of this piece about like sure. the possibility of not necessarily interpersonal but intergenerational transmission sure. of um of trauma uh so maybe we might just get into talking about what you think are the key kind of things that um that this piece kind of what you took from the piece yeah so i, I as um as i was saying i kind of parked um the psychoanalysis thing for a while um i was reading a lot about 
housing activism actually but then this i went to this reading group and then i was uh, reading through this piece and it was kind of one of those light bulb moments i don't sometimes you feel like something that's been kind of an irritation like a piece of sand or something in your brain that's been irritating you and then suddenly it's gone and you're like oh wow and that was the piece that i was missing from how i think about or a different a couple of different things that i've been thinking kind of flipped in the pace and what it was that was this idea of how defenses are constructed so that like our internal organizations that we use to grapple with the world, how we orientate ourselves in relation to the world. Um, a large part of that is a defense, I guess. The world is a very scary, traumatic place, especially outside once you have an ego. Yeah. And um, this idea then that the defenses are not a symptom, or they are a symptom, but they're not a, um, uh, I guess how you put it, like a, a, like a, a, a tra- uh, symptom is the best way to put it, but it's, it's like a symptom, but not necessarily with the negative connotations of that. And the, mm. you, so that your symptom, like, um, like Lacan has this idea of the symptom, which is that this, uh, it's a symptom that's so close and so integrated into yourself that to attempt to remove it would be catastrophic to your identity. And okay, it's yeah. almost similar to that. It's that, that you have created a self and some of those self, some of that self is a defense against t- mm. bad things that have happened to you, but you can't remove those things really. They are a part of you as mm. much as anything else. And um, like I was thinking, it's almost like the defenses are kind of like a negative of the trauma that they have. You've kind of left that imprint on you, and that um, how and that that they're all a very um, sympathetic response to the lives that we've had to live, and that mm. they got you through. They got like your defenses got you through things that were difficult for you and and therefore they're kind of almost like a like a badge of honor or something i guess would be the way of putting it i really like that idea i think it's a very sympathetic idea about how especially things like psychosis or things like that are are not um something to be immediately terrified of but they are in fact uh, the brain attempting to reassert itself yeah and i i think this whole idea of like defenses i think for me anyway i'm just thinking about like i'm 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 sorry, I'm going to just read this as a queer piece. <laughs> but like <laughs> but just even I was reading um a piece a couple of days ago about like, you know, in epistemic injustices of the way that uh, trans people are treated in the courtrooms and how kind of a lot of survival for trans people and queer people is to like do the things that you really don't want to do but it's just your way to manage yourself in the world and make sure that you are not imposed with more harm. So even though your defense may cause you harm in some ways, it's not as bad as the violence that if you didn't have those defenses were. So I'm thinking about like, you know, people who have to quote unquote go stealth or people who actually don't, you know, perform their identity in the same way that they would like to because it's actually going to be threatening um, to them if they if they do so because you know the world is structured around ways that assumes that everyone you know well in this current historical presence historical present even where like everyone is assumed to be like born and everyone's on equal footing and there's like an ignorance of, of you know people's social positions and backgrounds and stuff that you know any kind of transgression 
is a problem. So we're kind of forced to kind of maintain ourselves and we learn how to maintain ourselves. But those defenses amass differently in different people. And I think this kind of goes into the kind of individual variation that he talks about is that like not all of the clients that he witnessed like like had this fear of breakdown, but it was certain people who had those like defenses built up within them. Sure. Is that, is that make sense kind of in? Yeah, no, no, I would definitely agree. Like that's the, the kind of tr- uh, the thrust of it is that like ourselves are a constant mediation between our subject and object like that um we are always responding to our relation like the our structures are always set up in such a way that both curt- curt- curtail us but also allow us to kind of rotate around objects you know mm. and um like and i guess the, the breakdown is when that rotation becomes non-sustainable and uh, mm. the kind of inter- interior structure structure kind of falls apart but I, I think what, what's interesting is that he doesn't necessarily make the breakdown itself into a, a point of judgment or a point of um, a failure, like because he very specifically says like that this is psychotic illness is a defense, and like I like to think of it as that like uh, it's almost like you've made like a Lego house or something and someone smashes it up, mm. and in that time when it's destroyed, you have a lacuna, a very bad, like it's it's you have no ability to re- to relate to the outside. But then as you're scrambling it together, um, your brain is just trying to put something, a structure back to pl- in place to in order mm-hmm. to be able to deal with this this world. And that that's where the kind of um, unusual connections come together. Stuff that people who don't suffer from psychosis might find impossible to explain. But it, it does make sense within the moment for you. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually almost think that that's kind of a delusion uh, point in like there's 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 position, there's possibilities for lines of flight there. Mm. Um, where like a connections made that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise done and then that will be part of mm. you going forward and i think that's a kind of um a very empowering i think or a potentially empowering concept that this idea that your psychosis is your brain attempting attempt, attempting to restore order it's not the opposite of that it's not a collapse of order it's it's you creating your own internal order and i think that's quite a, a nice idea yeah and i'm just actually thinking now that you say that um one of the the webinars that I was watching the other day with um, Lauren Berlant, which is probably why I ended up talking about cruel optimism a lot, because I've been thinking about like what cruel optimism means for now. But she says like there's this assumption that people have that like when you're crushed, you're finished. But being crushed doesn't mean you're finished. It just means you're moving in brokenness. So even those like little splintered parts of yourself or your body trying to reorganize itself it's actually it is this whole idea that you have different lines of flight or you have different pathways that you can follow or different you know disorientations or reorientations that you can take um but we do have this weird kind of as I was saying to you earlier like this weird kind of fetishization of like the like mentally distressed person as like incredibly vulnerable and without agency and you know requires not only support from community members and family but also like the state and stuff like that which like you know I can see the value of um but it also kind of reduces people's capacity to act on their own behalf and I think that in my experience of like thinking about like how I've kind of tried to deal with like 
issues of mental health and stuff. Like I just I had a comment passed to me recently where I was told that I had like really bad coping mechanisms and I just needed to go to therapy and then I could figure out how to cope with stress. And I was like, I feel like this is totally reductive of like so many different things in my life because it's just saying that if I go and talk to this one person, then there is a solution. Whereas maybe that's a route for some people, but also like the power to take control of that yourself and figure out how to, I suppose, move throughout the world differently. That is against kind of those kind of, I suppose, prescripted, you know, norms or yeah. paths that we should take in, in in healthcare and stuff. Yeah, because I think that Winnicott would say that like the coping mechanisms are not bad coping mechanisms because they're the coping mechanisms mm. that got you this far, you know, mm-hmm. and that maybe they're not sufficient for like that's the whole point of, of the fear of breakdown. I would think is that maybe they're not sufficient for the the next challenge. But they mm. were sufficient for the challenges so far. And then that's what the fear is. Like at the crux of it, that you're always worried about the next issue because you, like, if anything, this idea that your coping mechanisms are insufficient is kind of a manifestation of that fear of breakdown, maybe in the other or something like that. Mm. Like it's this idea that the things that have gotten you this far are not sufficient and that you will return to this kind of uh, collapse phase and mm. that, 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 you're kind of always in, in, in crisis or that the, your, the crisis is always ongoing. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, I would, I, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of type of people with coping mechanisms. I have a lot myself, some of them very unhealthy, but nonetheless, mm. they are coping mechanisms. That's what they're mm. there. Yeah. So I think we need to be more mindful of that. They did get us this far and we're still here and that we're still mm. kind of in the process of inventing ourselves and in, in, in the process of creating our own internal structures always. And I think as well, for me, I guess, coming into, I suppose, like, I feel like my politics have like radically shifted over the past year for numerous different reasons. But like learning about like kind of mutual aid, I suppose, in in the past like couple of months, really, has been kind of the thing that like how we can uh, what you know we call kind of like intimate publics of like you know we can co-construct coping me- mechanisms with people if we have communities of care and I think maybe this is my other kind of discomfort with like psychiatry and and stuff like that that like that it's a very medicalized space of, of care that is like very much can be like state constructed or I'm also like not a positivist so I'm like very like ooh science um so I I think I just have very I'm very hesitant to kind of adapt kind of medicalized versions of coping mechanisms so I think what you said as well about like having unhealthy coping mechanisms I'm like very much here for because uh, I think I have a lot of them and you know I I think that people don't realize how much sometimes you need to use them to and maybe like and I think I, I said this like I, I don't know if I said it to you or if I wrote it in the notes but like is the breakdown a generative political act because I think that like even just my own experience with like alcoholism 
is like I needed to relapse before I was like okay bitch (laughs) you need to figure this out properly because and like I I for a really long time I like felt really shameful because that collapse into alcoholism actually led to like a lot of other trauma but it actually I actually needed that to happen I needed to know that these are these don't work so I could so I could go again so I was just wondering you know could you talk about that from the Winnico piece or like if you have your own insights into that like feel free to divulge as much as you want I don't want to sure you know. um but I think like the a, a relapse is is almost um the textbook fear of breakdown surely mm. like it's it, especially if you think about it through like AA or um those kind of 12-step programs that that is the um the driver of those is that the fear of breakdown becomes almost the um the discipline in in, mm. those, in those groups and um like i think the what, what's interesting about winnicott saying that like people sometimes don't dif- disclose their fear of breakdown originally because their defenses are so well organized that they don't mm. they don't even let you in to know that they're afraid of this breakdown and i think that is like very key to it because the breakdown is kind of all always there and that the crisis is always there. And it's almost like when you live in this fear of breakdown, you're always living in the crisis. And mm. I can see how then having the actual breakdown can almost relieve that because it's, that's the fear then met. And mm. when you come out the other side of it, you have reoriented your, job, your subjectivity or whatever, and you have that capability to kind of move forward. You don't necessarily have to have the same fears. Obviously, a lot of people do, but there's definitely a, a point at which you can confront it, or, or, or that um, by looking into the breakdown, or by experiencing the breakdown, or in any way confronting it. I do, yeah. I think there's definitely a generative aspect to it, or some kind of, uh, like I was saying, like a, 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 the possibility even for a line of flight is there. Mm. And I think what you said there about like that fear of breakdown being the driving force behind a lot of those programs is kind of like the shame associated with with failing and particularly in a neoliberal context like that personal responsibility that is based around the failure of you not of you not being able to maintain yourself and you not being able to keep those mechanisms in place it's seen as like a personal failure that doesn't take into account like how different things affect you and how they kind of cause the initial breakdown to happen but also on this initial breakdown can we talk about the weird time in the piece because it is I, I I'm very much obsessed with ideas of temporality like only from kind of a personal interest perspective but I find it really interesting that he said that the breakdown does not have to be experienced, but they need to admit that they have experienced it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's I mean, that's like the the thing that I kind of drew me to it originally was the idea of this compassionate idea of the um, compassionate idea of having a breakdown, like the idea that it's it is a, a rational response to crisis. But what made me not be able to stop thinking about this piece is the time element because the temporality of it is bizarre like he seems to be suggesting that the breakdown happens kind of uh, before the ego develops so in that our relationship to uh, 
this facilitating environment, he calls it. So the point where we're kind of, you know, this Freud's idea that we're born too soon and that we're not full subjects and that we need a facilitating environment is what Winnicott would say to get us to being subjects mm. and that there's some lack there. That would be a very Lacanian thing. There's some absence. And um, like I remember, some, I can't remember who said it, but a good essay I read recently about Lacan said that we all start on minus one. I thought mm. that was a good way of putting it. And mm. um, But yeah, so there's some kind of uh, lack or something there that causes this primitive agonies, he calls them. So um, very prelingual kind of pre-form of the subject pain or uh, anxieties that um, that really form us and that we constantly... And the, the for, he says, that, uh, I don't necessarily agree with his classification of what primitive agony equals which type mm. of uh, neurosis. I think they're extremely old-fashioned. I wouldn't necessarily use that language. Mm. But the idea that there are certain primitive agonies that happen to us even before we're fully subjects that then manifest themselves in, in neurosis is interesting. But also the idea then that you don't necessarily have had to have that. So he sets up this whole thing about how, um, oh, yeah, well, you know, what happens is you have this really bad experience or something happens to you when you're an infant or, you know, early on in your life. And then that later manifests itself in a in a trauma. But then also you don't have to have that, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> it's it like a trap door. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's like it might have happened, might not have happened. Also, it could happen in the future, um, or you know, could have mm-hmm. happened to. Yeah, and also I, I, the stuff you were saying about the the transgenerational stuff was super interesting because I wouldn't have seen. Like, I definitely see where you're coming from it, but I would never have thought of that. But I think that was really interesting. I think I think I've written so much about like memory in my in my past career as a literary person, which may or may not actually still be the case as I really struggle to write my methods chapter because I just keep going back to theory and they're like, this has no relevance to your life. And then I'm like, I have a podcast about it actually. Um, I, I'm very interested in this whole idea of transgenerational trauma or intergenerational trauma because of all the kind of work that I've kind of looked at with you know I'm thinking like Toni Morrison's Beloved is about intergenerational trauma so much of Beckett's work is about intergenerational trauma um or like trauma as like a displaced or disembodied kind of entity that kind of haunts different people Uh, I'm thinking um oh what's the play with the mouth don't need more not I Sorry, <laughs> uh, where like there's like these deep descriptions of a trauma that happened and it's not explicit what has actually happened. And then Mouth repeatedly says, no, not me, not I, her, over and over again. That it's almost like, has Mouth experienced the trauma? Has someone close to Mouth experienced the trauma? Is is Mouth actually performing trauma as it were it's it's very kind of confusing but I I, I'm really interested in in that whole idea that like even just like hearing about people's experiences is like a process of re-traumatization for people in some ways I'm also thinking as well about um Janet Frame are you aware of her she wrote Faces in the Water you should actually read it it's very good it's about the border about uh, the blurred border between sanity and insanity and she says like at all time like everyone experiences um these kind of bouts of of instability we all see faces in the water it's not just people making them up essentially um 
But her story is really interesting because she actually fell in love with someone who was training to be a psychotherapist and they told her that all talented people were mad and that she was a really good writer. So then she started like performing madness, but to the point where she actually internalized it so much that she committed herself to a life of institutionalization because she kept going back to that. That's really so, interesting because the this, the film that we watched when, in tandem with this in, in the reading group in Berlin was The Shock Corridor and it's about a a, um, a, a journalist who wants to do an expose on um, a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. So he gets himself committed and pretend he does a training to learn how to pretend to be psychotic. And then while he's in the hospital, the, the it becomes blurry because the way that he's treated in the hospital is like a patient. And then as he performs mm. that role as patient, he slowly be generally genuinely does become one. Mm. And it's, it's it's interesting that that's that it comes two people independently both saw this kind of idea of um, the performance of uh, the performance of mental illness in in this piece. So that's quite interesting. And I wonder, like, is that then that like. Because I'm even thinking now, just like everything's going on, like I'm very stressed and I'm having like very poor responses to things. And I know that they're poor responses. And I'm like, are all these people reacting in such a way, causing me to react the way that I am? And like, you know, and th- and this, I think, is where I'm, I'm falling more into kind of this idea of like, that we move within an assemblage and that we are all affecting one another and producing affectations and being affected by other affectations sure in that this kind of idea that the the breakdown doesn't necessarily has to have happened is it a case that through this process of learning about other traumas do we do we actually build up this sense of fear ourselves of having that breakdown that we may not necessarily have ever had but it's those kind of because I'm even thinking (laughs) this is actually so embarrassing but it's uh like when I was like 16 and I read like Catcher in the Rye and I was like convinced that I was like Holden Caulfield and like I like internalizing this whole thing being like everyone's an idiot but me and then I'm like no I'm actually Bobo the Clown and I don't understand anything (laughs) but um like you know that we like everything not necessarily even just hearing stories of trauma but like everything impacts us uh, and we can kind of take hold of that Uh, and I suppose or what does that mean then for thinking about about trauma and thinking about breakdown if we are consistently being impacted by different things like where can we actually find an origin point? And maybe this is what psychoanalysis is about. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, actually, I'm going to try and do, try and bring, get together with three different threads here. So there was, when he talks about this kind of idea of the facilitating environment, I think that's where, because he talks about the facilitating environment, not just being like a situation that the kind of infant slash child slash subject is in. It's almost like that environment adapts itself in tandem with the real individual. So it's it's there's 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 a negotiation there even in kind of the pre-edible phase that we have a negotiation and I think that's maybe where the the affect initially comes and then that's how we then learn I guess in order to to take in the kind of waves of external influence and what I think is interesting about the breakdown then is like 
is he saying that the breakdown occurs there and that like we almost have a breakdown as like an infant and in that it's currently re- remembered because I was thinking that's almost kind of Nietzschean kind of this idea of eternal reoccurrence that because you know, the demon curses us to constantly relive this life that we've been having and that we're always in this kind of constant state of crisis and what it reminded me of and then was your idea of the um intergenerational thing was in um Hannibal the 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 the, the, um, the book not the, not the TV show or the movie but the the book about the cannibal he in that one his daughter no his sister was um killed i think by nazis in the book and uh his thing is that he wants to kill people that are similar to her so that when entropy reverses and the whole of the universe turns itself there'll be a space left for her and she will have been kind of be able to be restored into someone else's position within kind of time and space. And I always think that's like almost kind of like a similar idea in that, like there's this traumas that are like both the fascist trauma, his own particular trauma. And then this idea of the linear time and like subjects changing position. And so like that we have, a, he's created his structure there that it, and he's hoping that she can he can reorientate himself around her in into into a different kind of perspective. I don't know if I'm right, and maybe I'm not. But I was thinking about what you said about Nietzsche and an eternal recurrence, and 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 how that might relate to cruel optimism. In that, like, it's that desire of an object that we know is going to cause us harm and going to stop us from, you know, progressing anywhere, but we still desire it anyway. And I think there was kind of like a relationship to this within the piece in that, you know, it's it's it goes back again to this whole idea of that the the present is just like a placeholder and that if if the breakdown is like going in all these weird temporal positions, if the present is just a placeholder, it kind of goes back to what you said about like Hannibal murdering all these people to to try and like have a placeholder for his sister somewhere but it's it's like the temporal conflicts throughout and the the affects that like are the disturbance throughout that and that we and it goes back I suppose to what um what Lauren Berlant has said about like history is always experienced in the present yeah and that we maybe this whole idea of the breakdown is that we are trying to I suppose it is it is actually an experience of of history in the present and that like working through I'm particularly thinking about this in relation to like intergenerational trauma when if we are talking about like you know say I am to experience something because I think about like my great grandmother who experienced something similar and I then kind of internalize that and live through that within the present. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Um, but, uh, no, I think you are. It's, it's similar also what's to the kind of, um, is it Tulu or is it Bergson? But this idea of kind of spatializing time, you know, um, so yeah. that we can like that by living within time, we have, a certain amount of freedom to kind of reposition ourselves temporally and then in that gives us a certain amount of, whereas when you're living within space you don't have that freedom like um mm-hmm. and i think i think that's kind of an interesting 
way of looking at it, especially when you're saying about this idea of, of trauma, particularly, like that's almost like the inverse of it. Like it's the by living within time where we're all, like, kind of always in crisis, always feeling trauma, which again is kind of I think where this point is dealing with. Like we're, I think I put it in one of the notes that's almost like a snakes and ladders approach to uh, yes. to, uh, to, to to trauma or to, to interpreting reality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I find that really interesting, the idea of playing snakes and ladders. Yeah, so I was just thinking like that your just your defenses are always structured to live through the last crisis. You know, it's mm. always it's like um, so I, someone someone said it about the EU that the um, the EU's economic policy is always geared to deal with the last crisis so the reason why mm. the coronavirus response has been so bad is because they're using the tools they, they should have used to deal with the banking crisis mm. and then when the next crisis comes along they'll use the tools that should have been used for the um, coronavirus crisis and i think that's quite an interesting way of looking at it like that we can our tools are always to deal with the last crisis we're always doing our best to deal with the current crisis and we're always in the expectation of the next one and sometimes our previous tools will get us through and get, allow us to model through. That's what I meant by kind of the snakes and ladders in that, like, mm. you're always, there's always a possibility to slide back to square one. What I kind of wanted to ask you then is maybe we don't have an answer to it, but that whole idea of what happens when the crisis is in crisis. So if we are constantly living in crisis, and we have this fear of breakdown as a result of living in crisis. Um, and, and I know that like Winnicott talks a lot about like that there's like this compulsion towards like death and, and stuff like that, that patients have because they want to just like end the cycle. Um, but like what happens then when like that kind of compulsion is is thrown so like i'm thinking here is like if you are kind of stopped in in your kind of um tracks of of, of uh if you're stopped in your tracks of finding new coping mechanisms by say like you know taking some prozac or if you are you know in like severe cases you're like being like heavily sedated or like institutionalized and things like that what happens when you are like limited in that way do you think that there's like any way that like Winnicott talks about that because I'm interested in this whole idea of like when we are pushed to our limits how do we live through and with the limits um without kind of I suppose like collapsing through things um and Lauren Berlant talks about this a lot with like oh yeah being in life without wanting the world okay was the was the th so it's like you're kind you're in this position and, and like people like I, I find like sometimes I'm thinking about people that I know that have literally been so like heavily sedated to try and like help them with um, coping with the trauma that they are going through. And it just doesn't seem to be an effective thing. And I think that maybe that's where the whole idea of like the crisis being in crisis is because it's like, it's like putting a plaster over a wound with glass in it and expecting it to heal. 
um, sure. maybe, I don't know. It's actually something I've been considering a lot lately just because of the current world situation that we're in. Like, I'm struggling quite a bit with my mental health at the moment, but also all of the structures I created, both the kind of coping mechanisms I had that were like, you know, meeting people, going to reading groups, hanging out, doing mm-hmm. stuff like that are gone. But also all the kind of negative um, stuff, like even the, like, like I've, I'm bipolar, I don't know if I mentioned that already, but like the, 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 the mania that I would usually, this is zero stimulation. So like, like mm-hmm. even this, like what Winnicott would call my um, my defenses, or the, 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 flee, the flight into psychosis or whatever doesn't even seem to be available because there's zero stimulation, there's zero. So it's then it's this kind of like this block where I am not doing great, but also not in this holding pattern where there's zero. Um, like they're just kind of always at a rock bottom at like kind of this low ebb, but there's no ever movement from there. And it's interesting. I don't, I don't, I don't actually know if there is an answer to it. What happens mm. when crisis in crisis? It's just gotta see what happens. Um, maybe I will construct some new, better structure mm. where I can just be content within myself without having to have some. But I don't know if that's a thing. I don't. I don't think that's possible. I think we're mm. um, fundamentally social creatures, or whatever, and that that this unnatural state of being will pass, and then I'll once again relish in my negative and positive coping mechanisms. We'll see. I think as well, it's like the, I suppose, maybe a part of this fear of breakdown is that like also that fear will become like, not that it will like the, I I think sometimes as well, like even having that kind of, as you said, like those like experiences of psychosis, like having those can be really effective. And maybe this goes back to the idea of like the generative possibilities of it, that like even that kind of fear of losing that fear if that yeah. makes sense uh sure. you you and maybe it will it'll go back to this whole idea about what you said about like the more you do psychoanalysis the less you know about yourself and and it's this whole thing that like if I lose this really integral part of of what I understand about my own psyche where where will what what ceases to be a part of me yeah. um and I even think about, sorry, um, of just like when I have gotten into those like spaces of, of like being really productive and really being like really quote unquote like happy or, or functioning or whatever, that it's like, oh God, I'm one of those people. Do you know, like <laughs> that it's like I am just as much a, like complicit in this kind of like toxic positivity culture at times um, because that kind of I've lost that sense of self that like has kind of kept me in check almost sure. if that makes sense yeah, yeah because there is that element of which like the recovery almost becomes the self in that like you are so invested in the fact that you are now a recovered person the recovery um can become something you grasp onto and it becomes the like the fear of breakdown is then tied in with the kind of um the loss of the gains you re- of your recovery I guess and mm. then but also I think one thing that I always noticed in my recoveries or whatever was I hate the idea that sometimes doing stuff like going for a walk every day and eating well does just work and like I hate that like it annoys yeah. me so much and like um a lot of my bad 
kind of or not bad coping mechanisms, a lot of my kind of unhealthy coping mechanisms are, are kind of also a reaction to that. And like I'll put up with it for a while. Like I'll do all the stuff they tell me to do, take my medication, do all the stuff. Then it just comes to a point where it's like, no, there's had too much of this now. I can't be one of those people that just can't like I just in my head can't accept. Um, so there's almost the flip side of that. It's that's the kind of the drive then the um the the drive to break down, I guess, or whatever. The that it just is that I think is the kind of the flip side of it. Mm. Yeah, I have literally the exact same responses where I'm like, I can't believe going for a run gave me endorphins. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, how did I, how has my, like, does this mean that I have to believe in science? Um, <laughs> and and that ultimately, like, I, I just, I feel like almost this, like, it is this, like, weird loss of, of sense of identity that, like, for I think it's just like this whole thing as well that like for years I like basically modeled my whole personality around like that Joni Mitchell album cover where she's like smoking and has a glass of wine and now I'm just like oh my god now I box and like run and like don't drink really and and it's like um am I actually am I still Ellen at all um but I think I have many crises of identity that like converge uh, and uh, and uh, diverge at multiple intersections in my life. I wrote this note saying existence as a cult and I don't know if I took it from the piece itself but I kind of think that it feeds into what we were just saying about like how the kind of idea of the recovered self is like oh my god I'm part of I'm part of the mainstream. I'm part of like the hegemonic early risers and like people who have productive lives and stuff like that. And I don't know if like what we think about or if you have any thoughts about that whole idea of um of like existence as a cult and that like we have this kind of universalized emotions and like this almost this universalized idea of like what compassion and care looks like that isn't necessarily useful or effective particularly when we think about how breakdown can be useful and effective that this kind of narrative of like a universal like care and compassion for vulnerable people and this kind of goes back to I think what we talked about on Twitter yesterday about like one narrative of like what makes a good ex person who has experienced whatever um that like there's only room for one descriptor sure. of experience i just wondered if you had any thoughts about that it's like his idea of this kind of idea of the existence as a cult thing is that um this idea that this the self as like a as a defense kind of projects ideas onto it's like his idea is i think he mentioned something about like i'm the king of the castle you're a dirty rascal this idea that you have mm. these kind of super like I, I i as a person with bipolar this idea of delusions of grandeur or these kind of things that these kind of things are it's a very sophisticated defense mechanisms that you kind of um 
your own self is kind of removed and replaced by either a hyper-aggrandized version in kind of like a, a manic phase or a completely non-existent, like you are not a person, you are not a subject idea in kind of depressive phase. That's when he, and then he says that this is kind of limited, like related to religions and, and cults, but mm. that, um, but also that they, they can both kind of give you these delusions of grandeur, but also kind of posit themselves as the as the salvation of those things. So this idea then that the reassertion of yourself as a subject is a cult or a cult-like mm. behavior, I think is where I think where he's coming from it. But it's yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting idea. I I definitely feel that the the um the first half of it, like I definitely feel like that your own self to self and, and your own understanding of existence and your own positioning of yourself within existence is definitely flimsy at best. But yeah. I'm not I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with his second half, this idea that um it's a kind of quasi religious or but or the the assertion of yourself is, is quasi religious. I think you can well I think he says it's either existentialist or quasi religious, which I think is kind of having your cake and eating it. But And I think this is goes back to I think what I said to you about like my weird relationship with like phenomenology that like I'm like really interested in pursuing that like as a political project and like you know reclaiming kind of lived experiences and talking about people's experiences of phenomena and things like that particularly people who are written out of history but then like as someone who's like really interested in like Dillas and, and post-humanism and I'm like there is no subjectivity or whatever that like I have these conflicts where I am also having my cake and eating it too um sure. which Dialectics. is yeah yeah that, that's literally it it's like uh, and I I just like saw I don't know if you follow he Valencia on Instagram or Twitter he's like techno artist uh, but he has like amazing like just like he just like shits all over everyone and he was just like you should be pointing a gun at like the the very ideologies that you hold dear to yourself as much as you embrace them sure and I think that that's kind of what I want to use this space for because like I think before talking to you or even reading this like I would have ne- I don't know who this man is like it, like you know I would have never even thought about like pursuing or talking about psychoanalysis because I'm just like no I'm a delusion blah 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 and then I was I was thinking about this a lot recently because I was reading um Rosie Bradoti she's that uh I don't know if she's a delusion scholar she probably wouldn't call herself this because she said like there's no such thing as delusions there's only people that use that stuff to make sense of the world from their own kind of sure. way of looking at things so um I suppose on that if there's not is there anything else that you would like to talk about or will I ask you the final question well I was just going to say there was just interesting about this idea of um always interrogating or putting a gun to your um to the people you hold dear because uh, uh i think it was todd engley who's a lacanian uh mm. was saying about um Deleuze, is saying that like anti-oedipus um is like but what could be more oedipal than trying to take down the father of freud <laughs> <laughs> i think that there's so many contradictions within and like complicated relationships but um i was actually teaching my law class which is I didn't know you did law in college at all <laughs> not a good time 
I thought you did like HPSS for some reason. No, low plus, low plus. (laughs) I think in my head I'm like, oh yeah, sure. David is one of those HPSS lads who like is really into marks, like my friends do. (laughs) But but I actually, funnily enough, teach a law class as a sociologist, which is hilarious. Um, But um, someone said in it, it was like you need to learn how to live in contradictions before you can actually be able to make sense of things and it's really important to kind of have those contradictions and I think that goes back to what we we're saying about like that contradictions or complications or anything like that can be like a generative process sure. um, but I suppose just to finish up because I don't want to take up too much of your time um is why do you think it might be important for people to, I suppose, think about this idea of like breakdown as defense in the current political times that we are living in? I think it's to, first of all, the stuff we were saying about it being compassionate to um, to people that are suffering from psychosis. I think as for people with psychosis, it's also a better way to think about yourself rather than thinking about yourself as defective. It, it's just your brain is trying or your subconscious is trying to construct the self always and that sometimes reality maybe is too much for you but that's not a not a, a failing it's and then your psychosis is not a further failure it's in fact your response to a collapse of it and that it's your recovery starts in the psychosis i think is the way to look at it and i think that's a very empowering or potentially empowering, not necessarily empowering, but potentially empowering thought. And I think um, there's a lot of people struggling at the moment with the weird world that we're in. And I think the fear of breakdown is a thing that a lot of people are probably dealing with right now because they're being pushed to their limits and maybe they're thinking, is this the day when I go beyond what I can capable, what I'm capable of standing up to? And the idea that you can confront that or the idea that you can... Um, work in that area and do work to recognize the impulses or the, the primitive agonies or whatever you want to call them that are constructing this moment is a very useful way to deal with it, I think. And um, we'll see if I can be a lib proof for that. Yeah. I think it was really interesting for me to think about as well, because I think that like I'm very much working through this idea of like, where it's kind of that idea you know of like do you when you're reporting about like issues of whatever sexual violence do you call someone a survivor or do you call someone a victim and I think it goes back to as well kind of like the emotive responses that we have with language and how like you know this bullshit that we were fed during the repeal campaign that we had to save women and girls because that was more emotive than people that like even just this possibility of like reframing breakdown as agency rather than reframe or like framing it as this is like this is it this is rock bottom and you have no you have no other chances you need help um but like reframing it so that like there's more movement yeah. um 
And it's a it, rational it, response, or maybe not. Maybe yeah. rational is not the word to do. Maybe rational is not the way to explain something that's happening subconsciously. But it's a, <laughs> um, but it's a um, an understandable response. Like it's yeah. it's a um, it, or a natural response, I guess. Or not I mean, natural is a weird word to use. But you know, you, it's you know, what I'm driving at that. It's like th- there's an there's a causality there where it's not it's you attempting to recreate your defenses or to recreate yourself in order to reorientate yourself into the society you live within or the world you live within or the objects you relate to and that to punish yourself or to to look down on yourself for you should you should instead look to it as this is just something that my mind needed to do yeah absolutely listen thank you so much this was really important conversation to have and i'm excited to get it out into the world so that's the episode thanks so much to david for being a part of this and for being so encouraging about starting the podcast i am indebted to him for giving me this incredibly stressful yet incredibly fulfilling lifeline in my life If you have any questions for David, I'll pop his social media details in the show notes so you can have a chat with him about the piece or other critical theorists or Lacan. He loves Lacan. Um, So do get in contact with him or do just follow him on Twitter. He's very insightful and writes some amazing things. Next week, I will be talking to my friend Michal Keating about ontology and we're going to talk about his MA project, which is very, very interesting And I'm going to leave a link to the film that he did in this week's show notes, just so you can get a feel of like what he does. Um, He's an artist. I think he's an artist anyway. I don't know if he would self-define as an artist, Um, but he's an audio engineer and musician uh, based in County Limerick and sometimes Limerick City. And yeah, he's just an all around good person. And I'm really excited to talk to him about Dillas and Fisher and Derrida and lots of other cool stuff. Um, so I'm very excited to have Michal on the show and very excited to have some great conversations with him. So thanks again for listening and as always, stay oozy.